1: Listening to The Economist Asks, I'm Anne McElvoy. My guest today is a titan of stage and screen. He's most well-known for his performance as a world-weary homicide detective on the HBO drama The
0: Wire. You know the goddamn geo, It's homicide's call. You don't go putting your paws in my... Take her- it easy, Bob. Al Herc is trying to help us here. Man, he messed in my murder. He paid well, Give him a chance. We can work something out. It's easy for you to say. You ain't the primary on this.
1: And he walked the now Duchess of Sussex Meghan Markle down the aisle as our on-screen dad in the legal drama Suits. about
0: your daughter's home. Don't you dare use my daughter as a bargaining chip. She's a grown-ass woman. She can take care of herself. So, like Harvey said, you take care of your house because I'm going to take care of mine.
1: He's also a Tony Award-winning producer for Clybourne Park and has written an award-winning memoir, The Wind in the Reeds, about rebuilding his family life and community after Hurricane Katrina devastated his home city of New Orleans. Wendell Pierce starred as the tragic anti-hero in Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman at the Young Vic Theatre. London's first black Loman family and its success is reflected in the fact that it's transferring to the West End in October. So this week we're asking, should race matter on stage? caught up with Wendell Pierce backstage at the theatre before a performance in early July. Wendell Pierce, welcome to The Economist Arts. Thank you,
0: thank you for having me.
1: Remaking Arthur Miller, that iconic play with a mainly black cast, replacing the Jewish Willie Loman with an African-American, how much do you associate with that particular incarnation?
0: One, I just want to uh, correct you, it's mm. not a remake at all. We are doing the play and uh Willie Loman is willie Loman um Mr Miller never said he was jewish um, it has become uh an assumption a cultural assumption uh, as it has been uh, presented these over these seventy years that the family was Jewish because uh, mr miller was jewish his uh Everyone is aware of that he based this on his Uncle Marty, and all artists kind of start from who they are and where they are. But actually, race is not very much a part of the play at all. Secondly, we service all the conflict, all of the principles, all of the ideas and conceits that Mr. Miller wanted his audience to, to consider over the course of the play. To add the interpretation of an African-American family is to add um, uh, illumination to that. Uh, I, I don't believe any interpretation uh, should be done if it's just trite or a gimmick. It should be done only if it illuminates. And, um, and the more specific you are, the more universal it becomes. So all of the different obstacles that were placed in front of Willie Loman. All of the confrontations that he has, uh, adding the element of being an African-American man adds just another variable to it and illuminates the play even more. That's why I wanted to do it, that's why I feel as though it works and uh, why I believe that the Miller estate approached our director, Mary Ann Elliott, and asked her to do it.
1: When you were approached to do it, how surprised were you that it was going to become really an overwhelmingly black cast. Another way you could have done it is you could have taken the role, but the family could have been whichever race. They could have been white, they could have been a a mixture of races. That would have been another way to do
0: it. Which has been done before. There was a production just uh, last year where it was colorblind casting. I I don't believe in colorblind casting uh, in particular works, in in this one in particular, uh, not to cast uh, any dispersion on the uh, the other production or any other productions that have done it, it is so rooted in a specific time that I think it would lose it loses something if it's just colorblind casting because you there's the specificity that you need about the family colorblind casting suggests that we're going to pretend that race doesn't matter and we all know that the ugly side of humanity is that race is a consideration at all times that 's personally what I believe it would be naive to believe that race isn 't a part of an interpretation when when naturalism or this sort of investigation of a specific time happens when it comes to opera or or verse you know or Shakespeare or whatever i i, I, I 'm the opposite you know. People always say, well, you know, you couldn't have a, 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 a white daughter, Wendell, because, you know, you're a black man. I'm like, well, we don't speak in iambic pentameter either. So if we're going to use the barometer of naturalism to decide whether or not this interpretation happens, we shouldn't do Shakespeare at all because people don't do it, we shouldn't do opera at all because people don't come with a libretto and this wonderfully orchestrated music beneath them as they speak and they happen to know it all the notes at the same time.
1: Uh, uh, last thought on the play, because I'd love it if you'd uh, you know, just tell me whether, whether I was seeing this as you felt that you were acting it. I thought for a long time, is this race just going to kind of hover around it any questions about race or its uh, impacts? and I thought this is worn very lightly and it's then when we get to there are a couple of points I think there's a restaurant scene and there's also that sense of once we see him having to sort of base himself before someone else who's treating Willie Loman uh, very badly his, his boss who just seems to think he's some sort of human algorithm to provide work and at that point I felt it. And I wondered, was, did we as the audience feel those references in the same places that you in the cast did? Or did we you know, did we miss, miss some? Uh,
0: no, I, I, absolutely. And actually, the audiences have illuminated uh, some even more. When you speak of the restaurant scene, uh, before our interpretation, it is always seen as uh, the Loman boys are given a special place, your own private room, your own, pr- own private dining room. And just the suggestion of a white waiter telling these young men, no, back here, you feel a lot more comfortable. You're seeing it through our eyes and our experience that uh, a lot of times, because you know you are an African-American patron, you go to restaurants and you are treated uh, poorly. And uh, without changing a line, the audiences, and we hadn't even considered it in rehearsal, that the audience came to me, uh, people would come to me afterwards and say, "Man, and when they put them in the back and segregated them from uh, from the restaurant, it was uh, God, that was really hurtful uh, i I fought for this interpretation when we were deciding on the racial makeup of the cast around me, uh, because there was a consideration that uh, Charlie and Bernard would be black, and that the woman I have an affair with is white was considered to be black, but then it loses the danger of that, and I reminded that the interpretation is stronger, the danger of what happened in America and still happens in America to this day, the accusation uh, um, of of sexual assault or rape of a black man by a white woman. Uh, In Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, 1921, Black Wall Street, the thriving neighborhood of Greenwood, uh, Tulsa. Uh, 300 people were murdered, and the community was burned down, all because a white woman on the elevator, who a black man stumbled into, accused him of doing something indecent. And that was the response. Emmett Till whistles at a white woman in Mississippi in 1955, just four years, five years after this play, and he is brutally lynched. The entire town of Rosewood, Florida, was destroyed because of the accusation. So the idea of me having that betrayal of the family, but also now I've put Biff in jeopardy. His life in jeopardy is endangered. It's not just a betrayal, I have actually endangered the life of my family and myself. And because it also all explains his do,
1: absolute panic, doesn't yes. it, when his son turns up, which is, of course, yes. difficult. But you always do kind of think, why does he, he's really almost in a you know, rictus of panic. And right. I think that, that's a very good example so it of intensifying Because this it. woman
0: could literally just walk out the door and both of our late lives would be in danger.
1: Tell me a bit more about your own background. You did write a memoir, The Wind in the Reeds*, describing yourself as a man of the South and your, your family's story.
0: Yeah, I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, which is uh, the deep South, but it's really different. New Orleans is, uh, I kind of say, it's the northernmost Caribbean city. It's uh, the last Bohemia, uh, the city that care for God because nobody cares. There's a, a born vivant nature about the city. Um, and... Uh, an amalgam of different ideas and people came together to make this gumbo of a city and uh, that's the way we approach life. Um, uh, At the same time, it was a very segregated city. The ugliness of America's original sin still can be seen, but also I grew up in a city of so much culture, uh, the jazz and uh, cuisine and architecture. It's a very much a part of our life. Every boy has picked up a trumpet in New Orleans at one point in their life, me included. I played trumpet for about two weeks. So it's a city of uh, of great culture um, that literally comes out of the ugliness, too, you know. When you see a jazz parade, it's an extension of associated pleasure clubs. And associated pleasure clubs came out of the fact that black neighborhoods were redlined. We couldn't get insurance. We couldn't get into hospitals. We couldn't get burial plots. So we pooled our money in these organizations called social aid and pleasure clubs. You understand the pleasure part. You see it every day. The music, the dancing, the umbrellas, the handkerchief, the second line, parade. Well, really, that was just one part of it. The other part is the social aid. So if your mother takes sick, we'll take some of the money out of pool. We've pooled together to help you. If your father dies, we're going to send him off nice, and hence the world has become aware of our jazz funerals. And that's where it came from. But once a year, these social aid and pleasure clubs also have just a second line parade for commerce to walk commerce into the neighborhood. So it literally is a moving um, economic engine, <laughs> you know, on Sundays. Walk me. So it really, my memoir was as we were destroyed by Hurricane Katrina, I wanted to remind myself along with the reader with how much our culture came from resistance and resilience to make it back and how we were going to rebuild our city block by block street by street
1: hurricane katrina and its aftermath obviously a huge impact for you personally Mm -hmm. the man of the the south and the person with this huge affinity that you've evoked for the community and for the city What was your response to it then? What's your response to it now? And have the intervening years changed anything about the way that you look at this catastrophe? Actually, largely a man-made catastrophe. Yes,
0: it is a man-made catastrophe. We we have to be vigilant about those who actually were never held accountable. But it taught me that if uh, you have to exercise the right of self-determination, that in the most um, vulnerable times a community can be destroyed and let go, forever forgotten about. And no one will ever take the time to say you are worthy of rebuilding unless you make that demand of those, those people in government, those people, just whoever is a part of the rebuilding, that you have to exercise your right of self-determination, make sure that people know that you are valued, that your community is valued, and in their planning that they plan to bring you back. Because what happened in New Orleans was they thought it was an ideal opportunity to do a land grab, get rid of as many people as possible, and then, say, after the course of a specific time, just reappropriate the property. And I knew that was going to happen, and that has happened to a certain extent and was planned to happen, and they put it on the front page of our newspaper Um, put green dots over all the neighborhoods. They just were going to say, we're going to let go back to green space. And I was like, they're not going to let it go back to green space. This is one of the great ports of the world. So they're not just going to let it go. They're just going to try to encourage all of these people to give up their properties and leave. And I pointed that, and I organized my community to make sure that they knew they had to advocate against that, you know, hard and strong. That's when we put together the punch train Park Community Development Corporation, negotiated all the properties that people gave up and said we're not coming back to give them to us so we can redevelop them. To date, we built 40 properties. So another company has taken over the remainder of properties. We have about 100 more that they're going to develop. But you used we spend a lot of
1: time there. Is that where you like Yeah, I'm tri
0: So I, I live in Los Angeles and I live in New Orleans and I live in New York
1: the wire is probably the series many viewers in in britain will will know you from of course many in the in the us many more in, in the us for five series uh, from 2002 mm-hmm. you played bunk wooland our hard drinking cigar a chomping detective you have said that it was a deep and a rich experience playing this character, The Wire, people sit and have arguments about whether The Wire or The Sopranos is the greatest (laughs) TV series ever made. What was it about The Wire? And please reference your your own character and your input into that, that has us still having that conversation long after we've enjoyed and forgotten quite a lot of these dramas. What
0: what happened was uh, The Wire um, was a visual novel and one of the great things about David Simon was the the fact that he convinced the network and convinced people on television that audiences did not have to have everything wrapped up and neatly packaged by the end of the hour. That, like a good book, they're willing to go from chapter to chapter to see how characters develop, how storylines develop. And he always came to us as actors and he's to say that this is a visual novel. And up until the point of The Wire and The Sopranos coming to, Uh, starting this golden age of television, which we are definitely in a golden age, people, you know, could tune in and out of series and come to it at any time, and it would be, you know, I know I got the beginning, the crime happened at the the beginning of the hour, and the the prosecution happened at the end of the hour, done. Um, But it didn't happen like that, and that's why uh, The Wire was called Dickensian, and so that you had these uh, mercurial characters like uh, McNulty, or these, you know, uh, gruff, uh, salt-of-the-earth sort of homicide detectives like Bonk Moreland, the character that I played, coming together uh, in the most uh, uh, unlikely situations as homicide detective partners, but then finding something in each other that they really respected that held them close as friends.
1: And race plays a big role here, as it it must, in this drama set in, in
0: Baltimore,
1: I wonder when you, if you look at that, and you're looking at the way that you've reinterpreted a role as an African American. That 70 years ago, you have this very successful incarnation, which is set in a, you know, those' right on the edge of, of society. A few years ago, when we look at the argument and debate about race in America today, do you feel you're on a good trajectory, or do you think so many of the questions are unresolved? You talked about original I think, sin.
0: I think yes, the, the, America's original sin. Is just that, you know, those who uh, who understand and believe in the original sin of Adam and Eve, um, that we are uh, forever chronically asking for repentance, um, is exactly how I see America's original sin of race, of slavery, how the country was built. My father, in five more years, will be 100 years old, he'll be half the age of the country almost you know so it wasn't that long ago that we started this nation where you had millions of people who were being treated as chattel who against the law and at the risk of death learned to read and some of them and read this charter from this country that said all men are created equal And have the right to pursue life and liberty. Liberty, true freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. As they were enslaved. As families were separated. In my family in particular, my great-grandfather, Aristile Harris, was sold as a baby with his mother as a nigger and a half. And his earliest childhood memory, is being on a barge, a riverboat, after being sold and seeing his father and his other siblings on the banks who he never got to know. That's his first childhood memory, right? Think of the trauma of that. And at night, my great-great-grandmother would tell him, Aristeel, his mother, you're not a Harris, you're a Kristoff. One day, make it back to Kentucky and find your brothers and sisters and your and your father, if you ever get free, and to know the trauma of that. And people ask, well, why do you bring that up? That's so long ago. What the hell do you think is happening in Homestead, Florida right now? Children separated from their parents, traumatically sleeping on the floors in prison, who have done nothing wrong. Nothing. Nothing. And if you think walking into a country without... The proper documentation is worthy of imprisonment, of separation of families, of creating concentration camps. It's an ugly part of human nature. It's an ugly part of human nature that we have to be ever vigilant about. Because this is how the worst in humanity can, when merged with power and control, Turn out to be some of the most violent and dangerous times. Does that give you you've been
1: very you know, politically vociferous at, at times? Does that give you pause for thought, as we had an African American president, two two terms, then the big switch to Donald Trump? Does it make you think? Well, some gains were maybe less secure than was thought, no, or no. for you, you did you always doubt
0: that they were secure? I always told my <laughs> my liberal friends, you know. This is not, it's an ongoing thing, it's a continuum. It is a pendulum that swings back and forth. The barbarians are always at the gate. The benefit, the only benefit of Donald Trump is the fact that he is a reminder that, uh, that, that in America, racism thrives, fascism thrives, sexism thrives, that this entire immigration Charade, or as you said here, charade, is completely an exercise in militarized racism. I studied, and I do Jack Ryan, which is a show on Amazon, shameless plug. Uh, I play a CIA officer. And so we were researching at the CIA January 6th, I'll never forget the date, 2017. Uh, Trump had just been elected. He was awaiting his inauguration. And that weekend, the neo-Nazis rented the Ronald Reagan building, a building that my parents, my grandparents, that I paid for with my tax dollars, right, two blocks from the White House, three blocks from the uh, Holocaust Museum. And were in celebration of Donald Trump coming into office and see Kyle running up and down the aisles, throwing up the salute. January 6, 2017. And so what, that was a, remi- a reminder to me that Nazis are still alive, Nazism is still alive, racism is still alive, and slavery is still happening in this world. All of the ugliest things that we think are gone... I think it's naive and it's offensive to me when um, the liberal view is, "Oh, but you know, I thought we made all of these strides with Obama. We did." But you have to understand that that fight goes on. Past and can
1: Obama. I just just jump in I'm there sorry, and, and ask you? No, it's it's fascinating to 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 follow that that line. And let's look into just briefly into the Democratic uh, nomination, the contest. Do you, it's a personal uh, question about, about your preferences, so you don't mind, but do you, do you vote at all on lines of affinity? Would you genuinely yeah, support yeah, an yeah, African-American I, candidate I,
0: I, I over openly, a white one? I open, uh, it's never a choice of race. It's a choice of what's right. Someone I know personally is uh, Kamala Harris, so I support her in her effort, and I'm still open, to. So I support all of them. Because they're, because they're all trying to actually save the country from Trump because Trump is destroying democratic institutions and the rule of law, and he's a Nazi, and he's you a fascist. Donald
1: Trump is, is that? I mean, for Absolutely. all the many, that's, that's a very bold claim to call uh, Donald Trump a Nazi. I mean, some uh, people, I mean, perhaps, I, I, actually, I find that perhaps but, a line not to be crossed because what do you then say when you do encounter a real... Nazi or someone who is, as we now say, a neo-Nazi. Really? Are you sure that that is an okay description?
0: The neo-Nazis, neo-Nazis celebrated
1: Yes, but that is not the same as Donald Trump. And and Donald Trump
0: said, there were good people. I'm taking the words out of his mouth. They were good people. He, and the thing about fascists and Nazis today is they disguise it in sort of ambiguous language so they can make sure that when someone like myself call them out for what they are, they can say, I'm not a Nazi, I'm alt-right. I'm not a Nazi, I'm the new, whatever acronym that they've come up with. And racists and fascists have done that over the course of time. I remember I, was, I actually reminded my cast of this. When I was a little boy, the one thing my parents always schooled me about Don't let them do this to you. It was always a thing in New Orleans and in the South. You rub a little nigger's head for luck. So a white man would come up, oh, you did a good job, kid, and rub my head. I said, don't do that, man. And If you called him on it, I know what you're doing. What? I'm just being effusive. And there happy is, for there is, I do feel I should, uh, but
1: there is a counter-argument, which is, and we, we might need to stick on this for the rest of our adult lives, which is is, yeah, yeah. is that you end up with a lack of differentiation on the centre-left, and particularly as you go to the left, that almost anything that is an populism that offends the values you hold dear but, rightly, yeah. then ends up with being described using des- a no, no, language right. I, I of an extreme ideology. I, I, and it might sort of blur.
0: But what I'm saying is that there was no, no blurring here. Neo-Nazis believed in the hatred of Jews, of people of color, of anyone who wasn't Well, Aryan. I'm sure
1: you know, Donald, That's Donald Trump would incredibly said. deny that he hates Jews, wouldn't he?
0: Then, then why did he say I have, there were good people in that? What was the chant that night in, Charl- in Charlottesville? What was the chance? And then one of the members of that camp went out and ran over an anti-who, uh, who, who was protesting against them. And Donald Trump then said, hey, listen, there were good people on both sides. When he goes out of his way to say, my favorite president, out of all the presidents, indistinguishably, chooses Andrew Jackson, who said, we can get rid of the Native American." We will attempt to get rid of the Native American. We will put them in concentration camps. We will make them walk across the country to concentration camps. Once infected with smallpox, we will not cure them. Andrew Jackson is on record as being the equivalent of what Nazis believe. And
1: you think Donald Trump is signaling
0: something He's not signaling. He says it. Andrew Jackson's my favorite president. Had a rally at his house put the bust of Andrew Jackson behind his desk. So every time you see a picture of him there, he has a bust of Andrew Jackson who believed in the same things that Nazis believed in. And people say that, oh, that's a line to be crossed, but isn't he crossed the line. And when he crosses the line, he has no accountability. And, and people say, well, we shouldn't call him a Nazi when he is.
1: If Donald Trump wanted to come and see your death of a salesman or see something else you were in... What would your response be to that?
0: i will let him come and make sure he pays for his ticket.
1: So you do. We wouldn't feel, as Mike Pence, when he went to Hamilton, some of the audience booed him, which was clearly sent a signal they didn't think he should have been in the theatre.
0: Uh, no, them. it sent a signal that they didn't like his politics. That they didn't like his politics. It didn't say that he wasn't supposed to be in... A, in uh, no, in the audience, it was, it was like we don't like your politics, you know. And actually, the, the cast wanted to speak to him, and actually, at the curtain call, read a letter to him, so that we hope that you understand what this interpret this play is about. That is open because even before they got in office, they had already declared that we are going to we're going to come down on immigrants, right? That our immigration policy will be racist basically, because if, they, if, they, if they're not closing, they, you know, they, they're not exacting their policies uh, even across the board. But um, uh, it, 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 so they just expressed, the audience members were expressing their dislike of them. They, did, they weren't saying that he was being denied, being denied uh, from the audience. If Trump came, uh, I would hope he paid for his ticket, uh, and I wouldn't want to meet him.
1: I can't finish without asking you about your your famous on-screen family in Suits, which I've watched on on many a flight. I think it's got got me across the Atlantic any number of times. I'm now such an expert on the American legal system you you wouldn't believe it. (laughs) And You play Robert Zane, uh, Rachel uh, Zane's father. Rachel Zane, of course, was played by Meghan Markle now, the Duchess of Sussex, and also a guest on this show previously. How did you find working with her?
0: She's a sweetheart. She's a very talented actress. Uh, I loved working with her. Uh, One of the Things I think is a regret is that uh, she won't be acting anymore. I'm trying to encourage. I've, this has been my mantra in all interviews going around that uh, that um, hopefully that you know maybe she and uh, her husband, the prince, uh, will do the A.R. Gurney play, Love Letters, which would be really lovely just for them to be able to do this play where it's exchanged love letters between the the two writers. Um, Uh, Because uh, she's. Do you think she'll
1: miss her acting career?
0: I think she will. Maybe not all the time. Maybe not all the time.
1: Wendell Pierce, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And we want to hear what you think about race, politics, and theatre. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. You can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer, 12 issues for £12 or $12. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.